You're listening to Story Power, a podcast dedicated to disruptive storytelling. I'm your host, Jen Kinney. Welcome. Attorney, speaker, writer, abolitionist. These are just a few words that describe Amber Webb Booker. As a trial lawyer with nearly 100 first chair jury trials, Amber is among the top attorneys in Texas as measured by actual cases tried. But her gift and passion are empowering people through making complicated, intimidating information understandable, engaging, practical, and fun. This passion has extended beyond the courtroom to topics such as theology, politics, and social justice. Amber, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me, Jen. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I am excited that you're here. You know, I had a day today where, you know, I was just like tired, aggravated. I haven't had a lot of sleep and I'm like, oh, okay, I need to pull myself together for this conversation with Amber tonight. So I took a nap by the pool. I took a shower. I poured myself a little wine. I put earrings on. I got dressed up, you know, like I'm going out somewhere. Um, So I'm really looking forward to the conversation and for just an opportunity to get to know you more as well as to share your story with people. I will start out by saying that you are one of my favorite commentators on anything. Thank you. Your Instagram page, your Facebook page, your podcast, all of those things, like huge, huge fan. I would love for you to introduce yourself to us. Tell us about who you are, what has brought you to who you are today, and just like what you're passionate about. Yeah. So my name is Amber Booker. I'm from Dallas, Texas. I'm a country girl uh, masquerading as a city slicker. Uh, I am an attorney by trade but that's not what I do. Who I am is somebody who loves people. And I try to take my love for people and put that into action by using the things that I know how to do well to empower people. And for me, what that looks like is really, at my core, I'm a teacher. So I'm a trial lawyer. And my gift is taking complex information and making it and engaging and empowering and exciting. Um, I remember when I first started practicing law and I first started trying cases, jurors would come up to me after trial and they would be like, oh my gosh, I thought this was going to be boring. I thought that we weren't going to understand none of this stuff. And I had so much fun. Like, I understood the words that came out of your mouth and you talk just like us. I actually understood what you said. And like jurors would come up to me and they would (laughs) like, I have had jurors that like ask for like my autograph. Like, this is so weird, like in real life. And I have had jurors like ask for my card. The same thing started happening. So I started teaching a class at my church and people would come up to me after class like, oh my gosh, I understood what you said. So like, I never read the Bible before and understood it, or I never sat in church before and understood what people said, or really understood how that had anything to do with my real life. And then the same thing started happening to me when I would post things on Facebook, like about legal things. Like I would start posting things maybe about like hot topic issues, maybe trials that were happening. And people would be like, oh, so that's what that's about. or Oh, and so... I really kind of started to realize that there was like this common thread between all of these things, like that it wasn't necessarily that people didn't care. It was just simply that people needed access to information in a way that they could understand it so that they could be empowered to take that information and apply it in their own life. And so with things that I was passionate about, theology, politics, social justice. I just started kind of in my own little corner of the world, just breaking down information, talking about things in ways that I felt like people could digest the information 
and take it and use it in their everyday life and see how it was relevant and also see how that same information was being weaponized to keep them thinking certain things and keep them in certain cycles that was not in their best interest. And so out of that came my initial guest appearance on Brokish um, in season three. At that time, Erica Brown and Delina McFall were doing the podcast and asked me to come on and talk about money and mass incarceration uh, because I was a former prosecutor. And I guess the episode was really well received. And so um, like a few months later, I got like this really random phone call from Delina. And so I was like really worried that I had like said something and I was like, oh, Lord, these ladies done caught some smoke from some stuff that done came out of my mouth. <laughs> and like, what have I said? And so she was like, actually, I have a lot going on and I need to leave the podcast and Erica and I think you will be a great co-host to come and join in season four. And so I came and I joined Brokish and kind of the rest is history. And Erica and I have been trucking along. And so I started doing Brokish and um, I haven't looked back and I love Erica. And I'm so glad I started doing that because, um, like I said, I love talking about information in ways that empower people. And that's exactly what we do at Brokish. And um, that's what I do on Instagram. That's what I do on Facebook. That's what I do in trial. That's what I do when I teach the Bible. And so really, I just got a big mouth, child. So that's basically what I do is I run my mouth, basically. So, And I yes. appreciate it. I feel like the world is a better place <laughs> because of this. Right. Like, so I met you through Brokish and coming on as an yes. editor. Right. And it was so it's so interesting because yes. you just released an episode where you interviewed me. And when I was listening back through to that episode, it was so brilliant. Not me, because I'm just there telling my story. Right. But after every part that I would speak, you would break it down. And I'm like, man, is she like Fire. Like, this is amazing. You know, and I listen to you every week. You know, I listen to the every other week episodes and stuff for editing, and I'm always like blown away, truly. So I see that, like, when you say that you, you know, like, I really feel like you have a gifting in this. I think we can all do things, but like, that is your gifting for sure. I see that so clearly. Thank you. You said something on Instagram recently, and I thought it was just poignant. You said, I practice law, but my life's work is truly at the intersection of law, politics, and theology. Teaching people that true Christian worship is radically loving, justice-centered, and always relevant. Posted somewhere in my house. Can you talk about that a bit? Absolutely. I think that for so long, Christianity has been hijacked and perverted into this uh, misconception of an ideal or an aspiration of, first of all, a power, right? Um, and this idea that Christianity is about power and proximity to power, political power, particularly in evangelical America, but also about how we look, right? This, this belief that how we appear to be sanctified is more important than the work of becoming sanctified. And so the process of sanctification is wildly messy. And so the fact that we have the audacity to try and exclude other people from that process is so confusing to me. The fact that we look at people and say, you are too poor or too misfit or too queer or too black or too brown. You work outside of your home. Like you are not 
you know, conforming to this idea of what we call this ideal. We, we tell people that because we don't look like what we find comfortable, that they aren't good enough. It, it is it's wild to me that if people don't fit in our box, that we refuse to advocate for them. And Jesus did the exact opposite. He literally went out and found people who didn't fit in his box and he advocated for them. He found people who were misfit. He found people on the margins, in the fringes of society. And he said, I'm not advocating for you because you fit in my box. I'm literally advocating for you because you don't fit in my box. I'm not associating with you because you fit in my box. I'm associating with you because you don't fit in my box, right? And so it's just interesting to me that we have built a whole religious model on castigating people solely because they don't fit in our box. And it is so antithetical to everything Jesus modeled for us. And I just don't understand it. And I will just say also that Jesus did not advocate for people because he agreed with everything they did. He advocated for people as an act of radical love. And I just think that we are just so wildly missing the mark as a church today. And it, I find it just disgusting. Yeah, so let me let me ask you a little bit about your background. Um, but I'll tell you a little bit about mine. I have more recently gone through significant theological shifts. And I mean, I've been on this journey for probably the last eight years, and I think we've talked mm -hmm. about it in the past, like me leaving the big C. But I have learned a lot more over the last few years about just the concept of whiteness and white evangelicalism and those sorts of things. Did you grow up in evangelical spaces or would you say you grew up in different spaces? And like, how did you come into this transformation? Because I'd love to hear a little bit about like, what was your turning point that, that, because, because here's the thing, like when I listen to you speak, I'm sitting here, people can't see me, but I'm like, amen. And just like <laughs> everything you're saying resonates so deeply with me. And the thing that is just shocking as I continue to come out of that is how much it doesn't align with the teachings of Jesus and the life of Jesus. And yet for close to 20 years, I lived my life as an evangelical, as more of a fundamentalist evangelical, thinking that this was the way, the truth and the light, right? And then to, mm -hmm. to come into this place of realization that it's the farthest thing from it was really humbling for me. What was that like for you? We, I think we have probably more similar stories. I am the granddaughter of a Black Baptist preacher. So my grandfather did not believe women could preach or teach in church. Um, my grandfather didn't believe women should wear pants to church. Um, still to this day, my, my grandfather has since, he died in 2007, but even to this day when I go to church, um, my grandmother will side-eye me if I wear pants to church. I am 36 and I have never seen my grandmother in a pair of blue jeans in my entire life. My grandmother cannot drive. She's never worked outside of her home. And, and I have never seen my grandmother in casual clothes in my entire life. And so I was definitely churched much more culturally than spiritually. I mean, that is definitely the background I came from. And that women had a very particular place. Um, I grew up believing that... I had a certain role to play because I was a woman, but I felt a very strong gifting, a very strong urge to teach and speak. And it was interesting because my mother was a Bible teacher. My mother taught and spoke all over the country and even internationally. And she was preaching, but she couldn't call herself a preacher because she was a woman, <laughs> right? Um... And so I grew up with this very like dissonant theology, seeing a woman um, with a very clear Bible gifting um, who was being very clearly held back, feeling and sensing it with myself, right? 
but also feeling the urge to hold it back in myself because of what I was taught and feeling conflicted because I felt like it would be a sin to express it, you know, and feeling greatly influenced by white evangelicalism, proximate to white evangelicalism my entire life, going to white evangelical Christian schools up until I transitioned to private school. And I didn't come out of that up, up until really <laughs> just a few years ago. And the work of disentangling that has been very difficult, very difficult. Yes. Um, because the struggle to feel like I am not sinning by resisting the urge to believe that Christ did not create a hierarchy in creation is really difficult when that's all you've been brought up to believe, right? So really, it's probably been honestly just the last five years that I have been yeah. on a path of freeing myself from a lot of the toxic theology I held very dear because I stayed in, a, in an abusive mm. marriage as a result of that toxic theology. I normalized a lot of very harmful things because I believed a lot of lies about divine order, right? Christ, men, women, children, you know, um, and a lot of things that I thought were divine order was really abuse, right? And it took me a long mm -hmm. time to realize that. And so, yeah, yeah, it has been very hard. I'm in a, like a book study. It's called Subversive Seminary. And we've been reading a book called The Nonviolent Atonement by J. Denny Weaver. And so mm -hmm. chapter four was uh, focusing on James Cone and Black Liberation Theology Chapter five is feminist theology on the atonement. Chapter six is womanist theology on the atonement. And I started reading the feminist theology on the atonement two weeks ago, and it just broke me. Like, you know, you're talking and I'm getting teary-eyed and stuff, but um, there was just this point where, like, I'm in this group with, you know, like, 80 of my closest internet strangers. And I just said, look, like I am so angry mm -hmm. and I am so just devastated to sit with the reality of what this has done for women. Because, you know, it was talking about like divine child abuse and hierarchy and the divine order that you're talking about. And I think of all of the women who have subjugated themselves and who have been abused, you know, and like, and there was a woman in a group that I was in. She is currently working in anti-trafficking, but I spent 15 years working in anti-trafficking. And to see this thread of patriarchy, the thing that really hit me is when you said, grappling with this feeling that you're sinning as a woman stepping into where you feel called to like that resonates so much and i'm i'm just like in this raw place with it right now of grieving and mourning and getting free but realizing the weight and just how far we have traveled from what was to where we are today so i really just appreciate you sharing that Absolutely. And I think it's very important for me from a theological framework, because as we work to deconstruct all systems of oppression, it is important for people of faith, particularly Christians, to understand the root of all of this, um, particularly when we talk about patriarchy, because when we look at the Bible as a, as a history book, all of this goes back to that, right? Because the first time we see oppression noted in the Bible as a history book is between Adam and Eve, right? When he takes the power that God gives him over the animals to name them, and he misuses that power in abuse 
over Eve, right? Because God brought everything that he wanted Adam to name to him. And he gives that power to Adam to name the animals. And Adam misuses that power in abuse over Eve. And he names her. And in doing so, he treats her like an animal. And if you notice, God never calls Eve by that name. He only calls her the woman, Isha. She had a name. And so when we talk about deconstructing systems of oppression, a lot of times Christian people, we casualize the first act of oppression, right? That happens in the Bible the first time we see hierarchy, which is between the man and the woman. And so we have to be clear where it comes from because we cannot get to the root of racial hierarchy when we're talking about it as people of faith until we root out spiritually where it comes from, which is when we trace it back to the first time we see it in the biblical text. And so it is important for us to understand when we are looking at this in this book that we hold dear and treasure. And when we are looking at the very messy relationships that the redemptive framework happens against, that we see the first time hierarchy occurs and all the other steps that are built upon it because it's important for us to see how hierarchies are erected, right? And what happens when we normalize them and what happens when we don't call them out And what happens when little things become big things? And what happens when we overlook abuses of power, right? And what happens when we don't check small things, right? It's happening literally right in front of our face in the creation story. Mm -hmm. And so it's very important for us to take note of those things because it's continuing to happen today. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because it seems like you may have something in mind. Yeah, so it's interesting because we are on this path of erasure right now. You know, legislators are in a frenzy. (laughs) We're banning this, right? We're banning this. We can't talk about the 1619 Project. We can't talk about critical race theory. We can't talk about this. We can't talk about that, which is interesting because we wasn't ever talking about none of that anyway, right? <laughs> wasn't That's the funny part. We wasn't we wasn't talking about none of that anyway, but right. particularly for Christians. Christians in a lot of these states, these Southern states, for example, Texas, Florida, Arizona, where these are evangelical strongholds where these are people who consider the Bible an inerrant, authoritative text. You have these people who are in the name of a book erasing history when you have that same history demonstrated in front of you. You have proof of what happens when you go down this path. It is exemplified in the story of Adam and Eve. So Adam misuses his power. He exercises power in abuse over Eve to name her like an animal. It goes unchecked. Not even, not even in a different book. In the same book, because that is unchecked, we got Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Because this is, a, this is a, an abuse of power. We have an abuse of power We have an act of patriarchal abuse. We have a man abusing his power over a woman. And so because that goes unchecked, not even, not within the the same lineage, by the time we get to Sodom and Gomorrah, we are normalizing rape. We are normalizing the denigration of female bodies, right? So when they are trying to rape Lot, they're saying, hey, they're offering women. They say, you know, listen, rape the girls instead, right? Rape, rape the girls. Don't, don't, don't be weird and, mm-hmm. and rape boys. Rape the girls. 
right? So you're seeing an example of what happens when you erase and and overlook things, right? It metastasizes. It's just like cancer. It grows. It grows. These things don't go away. And so history teaches us when you don't acknowledge the past, it only gets worse. And so when you don't teach children about their history, when they don't know about the violence of plunder, when they don't know about the racism and the roots of the past, when they don't know about the true way that their country is founded, those things don't get better. They will get worse. And so the fact that we are willing to bet that people will make a better decision instead of attaching virtue to a worse decision, history tells us that that's not a good bet. History tells us that. Right. So would this be a good time to chat a little bit about the conversations that are happening nationwide about the boogeyman known as critical race theory? <laughs> you know what? I don't even think it's a boogeyman. I think it's a scapegoat. It's a political scapegoat. Okay. Because the people who are talking about it, they don't even know what it is. You know, and it's so interesting because, um, you know, I've heard all these people oh, well, I don't want my kids learning about critical race theory. And I'm like, what elementary school do your kids go to? Because my kids ain't learning about critical race theory. And I'm not aware Mm -hmm. of even any college level courses on critical race theory. I mean, and I heard a lot of people talking about, oh, well, it's it's a legal theory. Well, that's true. But I didn't learn about critical Mm -hmm. race theory in law school. I read about it in books. That's interesting. And I was able to understand it and comprehend it because I am a lawyer and it was posited by Mm -hmm. lawyers based upon legal principles. But, you know, Erica and I were talking about this. Um, I even checked on law school websites Y'all ain't no law schools teaching about critical race theory. No, no. Yeah. Yeah, this is a graduate level program, right? Exactly. This is a scapegoat to justify erasing Black history and Mm -hmm. the dirty parts of American history that point to the truth that America is rooted in genocide, human trafficking, and it is inextricably linked to plundering, and it is stained with blood and built on forced labor. And that is a truth that we don't want to tell. And we like to sit around and talk about Jefferson's words about holding these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, like he was making an ode to egalitarianism, when really he was literally talking about biology. He was literally saying that all people are the fruit of like zygotes, like he was literally saying all people come from fertilized eggs and sperm. He was not talking about racial equality. He was not talking about equity. He was not talking about all people having the right to being treated the same way in a society. And the fact that we want to propagate this narrative is a choice that is a part of a propaganda machine. That has no bearing on the truth. And these bans on critical race theory is in furtherance of that propaganda. Yeah, it's interesting because a couple of years ago I started, you know, like I've been called a Marxist and a, you know, (laughs) SJW and all of those things for many, many years now. Right. 
<laughs> but this CRT thing kept coming up and it was really coming up a lot from those in evangelical spaces. And, you know, I'm being accused of this thing and I don't even understand it. So I'm like, okay, well, I need to go on a journey and research it. And the thing that's amazing is I have spent probably two and a half years reading about it as I could, listening, learning, and I still don't know what the hell it is, to be honest with you. No, I do a little bit more. But honestly, I had a podcast recently with um, somebody by the name of Brad. He goes by also a carpenter on uh, Facebook and and Twitter, and he has written quite a bit about it. So I'm Mm -hmm. like, I only feel comfortable just now, after two and a half years of really studying it, even having a conversation where I interview somebody because, you know, I could be like, so what is it and how do we deal with it? And, you know, in those questions, but I wanted to have somewhat of a grasp on it myself and I'm watching this and I really wanted to ignore it for a long time. And I tried to, and I thought this is going to go away. But what I've realized in like my role as a woman who's white working to divest from whiteness and, and, and work in anti-racism, like I need to get my people. So what I'm constantly trying to do is figure out this dance of like, where am I wasting my time? Where is my energy well-placed? And I feel like, so I got a, I got a phone call from a family member last week who is not on social media, not online. And she's like, okay, what is critical race theory? And I'm like, (laughs) oh, I thought this was going to go away, right? So anyway, so there, there's my journey in terms of starting to have the conversations because so many people are curious about it. And yeah. I want to try to have these conversations in a way where you don't have to be an academic, right? Yeah. To understand basic ideas. And one of the things you mentioned is you really believe we need to understand the history, in order to understand what is being discussed. Can you talk about that a little bit? Absolutely. So the best way to understand critical race theory is to understand the history it evolved out of because it really was a reaction to the disappointment of the movement for desegregation. So in the aftermath of the fight to desegregate, You know, you have a lot of the seminal cases that were being litigated. So let me just say this. Let's just start with sort of the fundamental premise of the movement to desegregate. Their premise was desegregation was the means to the end. It was the pride that once we get to occupy the same places as white people, that that would be the win. Going to their schools, living in their neighborhoods, eating in their restaurants, drinking from their water fountains, that that was the equality, right? That was the assumption. And the assumption was that we could use the law to achieve that, right? But the movement to desegregate soon found out that that was a Wookiee. So... Once we got into the schools, Ruby Bridges found out that wasn't true. Once people like the Lovings, the plaintiffs in Loving versus Virginia, who got the Supreme Court to rule in their favor um, and were able to have an interracial marriage, um, the plaintiff in Boynton versus Virginia, we got to integrate bus terminals. We got to drink out of the water fountains. We got to eat in the restaurants. We realized, okay, we can eat in the restaurants. We go to their schools, but it's still not equal. We're here now, but there's still a problem, right? We're still not being treated the same. So perhaps something else is wrong. So there's a professor at that time, Derek Bell, who started writing that perhaps The issue is the law itself, right? So perhaps there's a problem with the law. Perhaps we don't just need to use the law to desegregate. Perhaps the problem is the law itself, right? Perhaps damn law is racist. So he starts writing about these issues with how maybe the law is racist and how maybe 
there is within the system itself challenges or inherent um, issues that will always make it fundamentally unfair to Black people, even if we're in the exact same school as white people, even if we're in the exact same neighborhood as white people. And this was built on the work of a scholar named Alan Freeman, who basically said that law is not some inherently universal thing, that law is always socially constructed based on the norms of the people who create it, right? So law is always normative. That's why at one period in time, it was socially acceptable for child brides to be given in marriage. That's why at one period in time, it was socially acceptable for indentured slaves to um, sell themselves into servitude as a means to pay off debt, right? Because law is always inherently fluid, right? And so Derrick Bell started building off of that concept that, yeah, so you always have to interrogate the norms of the people who create the law because law is never universal. It's always normative. And so then Kimberly Crenshaw came later along with people like Mari Matsuda and people like Patricia Williams and they uh, sort of gave it a name and they called it critical race theory. Kimberly Crenshaw named it and then they sort of started to basically say um, that because race is a social construct, um, that that social construct obviously impacts the system that we live in. And that if race is socially right. constructed, then the system is also socially constructed. And if the system socially constructs race, then obviously it is impacted and built into the system itself. So if the system built race, then race is intertwined into all aspects of the system. So if the system invented race, then race will impact every aspect of the system, right? And so that's basically what yeah. critical race theory posits. Yeah, and it's interesting because as I sit here thinking about, you know, what you were saying about this idea that there's a universality to the application of law, I even draw that in with like the universality of theology, right? This assumption mm -hmm. that there's just this universal approach to theology and how you know, James Cone actually spoke about that, you know, and the reality mm -hmm. that when you think you are the center of the universe, yes, then you think these certain things are, are universal. And so for people who are white, who haven't encountered a, a judicial system that is inherently racist against them, like for them, they're like, what do you mean the system is designed this way and impacts people differently. Um, I almost feel like what people are trying to do with creating CRT and putting out this idea to speak against, they're really saying they don't believe in systemic racism. They really don't believe in the movement for liberation and the movement for black lives. That's what they really mean. But they get to make it sound like some big scary thing critical race theory that nobody really knows about so they just believe them because for me I had to take two and a half years even researching it so I think that's incredibly frustrating having to engage this and deal with this and yet for me again I feel like this is something that I need to engage more with my people so everybody is trying to ban CRT and all of these schools are, are voting and banning it. And the thing that you pointed out is they're primarily in the South and in evangelical mm -hmm. strongholds. Mm -hmm. One thing that I hear a lot from people who I've engaged with about critical race theory who are Christians is they like to use this terminology that CRT is antithetical to the gospel. 
What do you think when you hear that? So here's the thing. The idea that a system or structure. So first of all, let's deconstruct what what the fundamental premise of whiteness is. So the idea that whiteness is a proxy for power, right? So that a long time ago, white people made a conscious decision to to shed their ethnic identities and in turn pick up whiteness in order to pick up power, right? So a conscious idea uh, to say, I'm not going to be German, I'm going to be white so that I can hoard power. I'm not going to be Italian, I'm going to be white so that I can concentrate power, right? So whiteness as a proxy for power, that's exactly what it is. Whiteness is a proxy for power. So let's just start there. What critical race theory says is that in a system, where whiteness is a proxy for power, that's socially constructed, right? So <laughs> whiteness is socially constructed and blackness, so blackness is the exact opposite. So whiteness is um, something that you, you, you choose to discard your race, but blackness is where your race is taken from you. It's a stripping. So this is a, this is a system that's built and constructed. And so you are basically talking about the ways that this system comes together and builds itself around a social construct. And that social construct cannot be inextricably created from the thing that it has built. You're right. They are right. It is antithetical to the gospel because the thing it's created is an idol. So they are right. Because whiteness is an idol that props itself up against the lordship of Jesus Christ. They are absolutely right. So critical race theory is a theory that has been developed to interrogate the power of an idol that is antithetical to the gospel. Because whiteness is mm. antithetical to the gospel because it is antagonistic to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. So I do agree with them in that sense, but the idea that the, the academic scholarship itself is antithetical to the gospel. No, it is not. The fact that we study the system is not problematic, but the fact that the system exists absolutely is problematic. The fact that we have hierarchies of men is problematic. The fact that men exalt themselves over other men and create power structures that create little lords, little L lords, is problematic. And it is ungodly. And it is unbiblical. Yes. And that is what they should be preaching against. But the fact that there is a scholarly discipline that interrogates that. No, that is not unbiblical. No. And the thing I, I had a little light bulb moment recently where I thought of it as, you know, like medicine and the way that we study the systems of the body and the way that we determine certain behaviors within the system of the body may cause right. diabetes or heart disease or, you know, these different things. That's not antithetical to the gospel, right? right? But that's right. equally as antithetical to the gospel as CRT. So in the event that somebody is listening to this episode and they don't have a really solid working understanding of the concept of systemic racism, being that you are an attorney and you have worked in this, what are some ways that you have seen systemic racism manifest? Oh, gosh. Um, well, in, in a lot of ways. I was a prosecutor for um, a few years and what I will tell you is that the system is not a system that is fundamentally fair. So it's sort of like if you, <laughs> so when you look at the statistics about who is arrested or who was convicted, and then those statistics are trotted out and it's like, oh, it's all these black people in the system. It's all these black people being arrested. But 
if neighborhoods are over-policed, right? So if you are militarized in particular parts of town, right, where per capita, the presence of the police to the number of residents is three times or four times what it is versus what it is in the white part of town, well, what a shocker. You know, like if ain't no police in a white part of town, then you ain't gonna have no white defendants, right? Statistics, right? The statistical probability. (laughs) Right. Crime is a social construct. Um, I saw that you had made the post about wage theft. Um, I posted the same thing like a few months ago. Wage theft is the most prevalent form of theft in the United States. And it accounts for billions of dollars of losses in the United States annually. And it is overwhelmingly committed by white corporate criminals. And it is only punished by civil penalty. So if Target steal money out of your check, they only going to get a fine. But if you steal Target TV, you're going to get arrested. And you're going to have to post bond. Right. You're going to have to hire a lawyer. You're going to get a record, which means that if you have a theft, that's a crime of moral turpitude, which means that there are certain jobs you will never be able to get. There are certain benefits you will never be able to get. There are certain housing you will never be able to get. Just certain things that you'll never be able to get because you have been convicted of a crime of moral turpitude which is a crime of dishonesty, okay? Because you stole a a TV out of Target, okay? Because it's a theft. But if Target steal your your money out of your check, they just got to pay a a fine and keep it moving, right? So crime is literally a social construct, right? Think about it. If Jeff Pezos cheats on his taxes, overwhelmingly likely that it will be a civil penalty. Meanwhile, Crystal Mason in Tarrant County accidentally voted while she was on probation and got sentenced to five years in prison in Tarrant County, Texas. Right. Okay. So you tell me which has a bigger impact on society, a billionaire not paying taxes or a single mom accidentally casting a single vote in an election. So just the idea of what we criminalize is socially construct, right? So again, Mm -hmm. think about, this is exactly what critical race theory interrogates, right? It's like, so think about it. When you are talking about the ways that race is inextricably woven into the society, What critical race theory says is that even when you ain't trying to be racist, racial disparities will occur, which means that the racial impacts will reverberate on the people at the bottom of the hierarchy, right? So for example, CRT started popping in the 80s when Derrick Bell got fired from Harvard. And the Harvard Law students said, hey, okay, since you fired Derrick Bell, we would like you to hire another Black law professor. And Harvard Law School was like, well, we can't because there are not enough qualified, prestigious Black legal scholars. And the law students at Harvard said, well, that's not true. But you can't come back and say, We want law professors who have clerked at the Supreme Court, worked in foo-foo, shoo-shoo law firms, and went to elite law schools when for the majority of the history of this country, Black folks couldn't go to elite law schools, clerk at the Supreme Court, and work at hoity-toity law firms. That's not merit that we didn't do that. That's racism, right? So perhaps you could evaluate on some other standards in determining what prestige is 
Because the fact that there are black people out there who are legal scholars who didn't do that, it's not by virtue of the fact that they're not qualified. It's because of racism, right? And the people at Harvard right. Law School was like, well, no, we're not willing to do that. So they were like, are you kidding me? Because that's not meritocracy that they didn't do that. That's just racism. So really, that's mm -hmm. when critical race theory really popped off was when the Harvard Law students started protesting in the wake of Derrick Bell getting fired, because that's the very point they were trying to make. Like, it's the system right. that makes the right. fact that the professors don't have these qualifications. That's why there aren't any. It's not that they ain't qualified. And so that's really what the point is, is that we have to look at how the system that constructs race creates the issues and is inextricably mm -hmm. linked with race. You have to look at that. That's all critical race theory says. Yeah. And it really ain't rocket science. We, we've all intuitively known that for years. Right. I mean, and I think of James Baldwin and other writers who've talked about a history that propels us and actually moves us in certain directions and if we don't understand that history and we don't understand what's moving us how will we mm -hmm. not just continue to perpetrate that and so what is what is the point of CRT what is the goal with CRT is there an end goal for me I think that honestly this has been a distraction you know, I, I think that this whole issue of critical race theory, um, the 1619 Project, all, all of this has been a distraction, you know, and Toni Morrison said it best. You know, the ultimate goal of racism at its core is a distraction to keep people from doing their work. You know, people are really talking about something right now that never really needed to be in the discourse. They are spewing a lot of misinformation. Uh, people have a lot of opinions about something that they don't know about, and they are spreading a lot of falsities. This is taking up a lot of legislative bandwidth, um, tying up a lot of political time and capital, that could be going towards things that really matter, solving real problems that really exist. This is honestly just a distraction. Intuitively, we all knew yeah. that the system we have here is a system that has in its ingredients something that includes a bias in favor of whiteness to the detriment of blackness and everybody else. And mm -hmm. before we had a stamp on that, that called it critical race theory, we all knew that. We all knew that, right? We all knew that. So I think that this is not anything that needs to be um, framed in terms of what the end goal is. We all need to get back to doing the work of dismantling the system. I think what the goal is for the political pundits who are manipulating this, for the conservatives and for the people who have an agenda to promote and protect and enshrine whiteness, what they want to do is they want to confuse and conflate discrimination and equity. And I think they are very effectively using this conversation to help people conflate those two terms and make people believe that equity and discrimination are the same thing. And I think the goal for us who are having this conversation is to help to remediate that and help to point out that discrimination and equity are not the same thing. Discrimination is the preservation of the hierarchy. Equity is after you dismantle the hierarchy, you can't pretend like the hierarchy never exists. 
And equity simply requires you to be mindful of the history of the hierarchy and the fact that the people who lived at the bottom of the hierarchy have a real lived experience at the bottom of the hierarchy. And you can't just tell them to go forth and prosper. You have to be sensitive to the fact that they've been at the bottom and they started from the bottom. Now they're here. And so you're going to have to give them some help to come from the bottom and give them some help to thrive as you dismantle. That is what equity is. And so these people want you to make, to pretend like being equitable is being discriminatory. That's what this is really about. Yeah, I appreciate that. Did you grow up wanting to be an attorney? Um, so this is so odd because sometimes I feel like I tell this story and it doesn't make any sense. Um, I was in third grade and I was a bright kid always. And I always kind of got to work ahead of my classmates. You know, my teacher would just allow me to kind of work until I finished. And so I reached a point early in the year where I had finished all my textbooks. I finished like my math book, my science book. And so as a reward, I was a little bit of a book nerd. So I would go to school every day and my teacher would just let me read books. And it was just like the thrill of my life. And one day my teacher gave me a book about Oprah Winfrey. And it just changed things for me. It was the first time I had seen a woman with skin like mine and a body like mine, because that's when Oprah was still fat, y'all. And she talked for a living. And that was the first time that I had some sense that maybe I could talk for a living. And I didn't exactly know how or what, but that was the first time I thought I could talk for a job. Um, but like I told you earlier, I grew up Baptist. So I grew up giving Easter pieces and, you know, I, you know, spoke in church and I did every, you know, I spoke at the National Baptist Convention and that evolved into I was on the debate team and mock trial and I did mock trial in college. And, um, you know, by the time I got to law school, I went to Texas Tech and Tech has a very good, like, advocacy program, but you are not allowed to compete your first year. Um, but I had come from a college where we had a nationally recognized team. And so I had a coach that just kind of decided to break the rules. He was a dean. He risked his job, put me on a team as a first year law student. So I kind of, I got to make history. I got to be on a team as a first year law student. I was the first first year law student to be able to be on a national team at Tech. We won, thank God. I didn't fail out of law school, thank God. That's awesome. He didn't get fired, thank God. <laughs> and so I think the bug had just always been in me. You know, I I just knew I liked talking to people. I knew... I got joy out of seeing the dots come together for people like and I got the joy out of being the one to connect it, you know, and that place where, you know, it always baffled me when I would see attorneys like get up and be like, you know, this catastrophic loss. And I'm like, you know, people don't have catastrophic losses. They have fires and people don't have automobile collisions. They have car wrecks and you know, like, why are you talking to people? Like, people, that's not what happened. Yeah. <laughs> now I have a case right now. It's like some wires going across a yard. And the the attorneys, they were looking at it and they, they couldn't figure out, like, how these people got hurt. And I was like, y'all, these wires are across this yard like that because these people is bootlegging this cable. Like, y'all don't know nobody that bootleg cable. Like, that's why these wires running through this yard like that. They, boot, they bootlegging the cable. like, And I just, it just always amazes me, like, how out of touch, like, some attorneys are. I'm like, like, it's, it's eight attorneys on the phone. Right. And don't nobody know these people bootlegging cable? Like, really? Like, for real? <laughs> like, dang. Like, don't, like, don't nobody on this phone go get a chicken basket on the weekend. Like, y'all don't know nobody that bootleg cable. Like, <laughs> 
And I mean, they are all like, our technicians would never run a cable like that. Like this, the technician, I'm like, no, the technicians didn't do that. They bootlegging the cable, boo. They're bootlegging the cable, okay? That's that's how, it's, it's, it's bootleg, okay? That's how, it's bootleg, all right? Oh well, that's not how. I'm glad we cleared that up. <laughs> Next issue, you know? So I don't know, like that. <laughs> right. So that's how, you know, I just, I just kind of got a sense in third grade, like, I wanted to talk to people and I didn't really know how or what that looked like and it just kind of evolved from there with Oprah and that that book I love that. and I you know yeah So what does the future look like for you? Well, you know, my my hope is more teaching and speaking and writing and you know podcasting um i hope to you know eventually transition out of practicing law full time um you know cuz ain't nobody got time for that you know i'm tired of giving my giving my life to the man <laughs> um but yeah i eventually want to you know, I I say all the time that in my heart and soul and mind, I know that God has called me to be an abolitionist. I feel like I have been called to set people free, you know, spiritually, politically, you know, academically. Um, and that is the work that I want to do. And so in my own corner of the world that's what i'm trying to do and hopefully i will get to just do more of it so yeah i love that one question that i ask everybody or most of my guests is what gives you hope you know honestly jen people like you give me hope you know people who are folks who should be benefiting from the hierarchy right getting fed off the hog but who are convicted morally and who are invested um, in the humanity of us all, in our shared yeah. fate, in our collective, you know, unity, who are just out here doing the righteous work. You know, people like you remind me that there's just good people in the world. And, you know, at the end of the day, we, we really are all we got. You know, like, I really hate to be out here quoting Nino Brown, but we really are all we got. And my hope is in people like you. My hope is in Christ. Um, My hope is in the gospel guarantee that if Christ is lifted up, he really will draw people to himself and so I really do have hope that there is redemption for you know calloused hearts I do believe that people can change I do believe that there are people amongst us right now who are lost who can be saved and so I just believe that if we keep doing righteous work we will get a righteous harvest. So that's why I keep doing what I'm doing. So where can people follow you and find you? So the best place to find me is on Payday on the Brokish Podcast on the 1st and the 15th of every month. You can go to brokishpodcast.com, B-R-O-K-E-I-S-H. E-O-D-C-A-S-T dot com, Brokish Podcast. I'm so proud of myself that I spell that. Um, you can find us on Instagram at Brokish Podcast. Um, you can find us on Twitter and um, Facebook as well. Um, and you can find our Twitter handle and our Facebook handles at IG. I'm not even going to try to, I'm not even going to do that to y'all. Just find us on IG and then find us on Twitter and Facebook. 
And then you can find me on IG at Amber W. Booker. And um, that's where I am. So follow Brokish Podcast and Amber W. Booker. And that's where I am, child. That's where I be. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much, Jen. I had so much fun. I'm so glad I got to hang out with you. Since recording this podcast a few weeks ago, my guest, Amber Webb Booker, has become Amber Webb Sims. So you can find her accordingly on Instagram at Amber W. Sims, and that's A-M-B-E-R-W-S-I-M-S. Mm-hmm.